Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I am your host, Bob Barrow. I want to start this episode off with a, uh, a round of thank yous. Thank you to everyone who's checked out the first episode, where I have a uh, spoilery-filled discussion about The Rise of Skywalker. I hope everyone paid attention to those spoiler warnings, those of you that checked it out so that I didn't ruin anything for you, and that uh, hopefully you've had a chance to check it out by this point as well, so you can come back and uh, hear uh, hear all of my wonderful, deep, intellectual thoughts about uh, Palpatine's gross dark side sex. So I hope you guys enjoyed that, and thank you to guys who joined me this time for episode two. Yes, I've made it to a whole two episodes of this show. So uh, the medication's still running strong with me, and despite wearing a halter monitor right now, which makes me a little bit of a robot doing this, um, I'm excited for this one. It should be fun. Um, yeah, I don't know if any of you ever had to uh, <laughs> go to a cardiac clinic before, but you know, at 35, it's my third round, which is great. Nothing particularly wrong, just a history of some heart problems in the family. So if any of you I guess when you get to your mid-30s, you start to uh, go, maybe I should start doing all those healthy things that everyone else is doing or seems to be working for a certain segment of the population. Because when I turned 30, a friend of mine, Hayden, said to me, well, you've reached the age where everything's going to start to hurt. And uh, he's been he's been quite right. <laughs> so it's been uh, it's been a slew of doctory stuff the last little while. But uh, but all good, all fun, except that, uh, you know, Having to run on a treadmill in front of people is always great if you're not a uh, a born runner. My running style uh, has been compared to a T-Rex with a, some kind of a palsy. So, yeah, not a natural athlete. So it's always great to be trapped in the room uh, <laughs> with two people watching you run shirtless in your jeans. Thank you, uh, Peterborough Cardiology Center. Get a change room so that we can change into the gym clothes that we brought. That would be good. But anyway, let's get off the uh, the little robotic sensor currently sitting on my side, and let's get to the point of why we're here. This episode, we're going to be discussing Avengers: Age of Ultron. I guess it's easy to call it a bit of the a bit of the black sheep of the Avengers family because we have the first. Avengers movie, I think it was 2012, Joss Whedon's Avengers, or The Avengers, which is is a, is a miracle of a film that that worked. You could say the fact that the MCU has come together at all and worked so wonderfully up until now is, is in itself a, a bit of a miracle, an enigma of cinema. But that first Avengers movie, I don't think anyone was expecting it to work. You know, we'd had... You know, obviously the first Iron Man is a total classic. The first Thor is a lot of fun. Captain America, the first Avenger is fun. But you're looking at something that's so unprecedented that you could take these disparate characters across all these different movies and drop them into this world. And that first Avengers movie is still a complete and utter blast. And that comes down to the the skill of the actors, but it also comes down to, to Joss Whedon as a writer-director. I'm sure anyone listening to this show or listening to me talk about this knows his history with with Buffy and Angel, but mostly with Firefly. That's where I come to it. I, I sat and watched all of Buffy, and I had uh, had my opinions changed on that. Uh, other than that abysmal season four and the abysmal season one, uh, the rest of it was I was pleasantly shocked by that show. But for me, it's it's Firefly and Serenity. That's what I love. So with that first Avengers movie, it's a near miracle that it worked. So we're coming out of that 
into phase two of the cinematic universe. Oh, okay. Now we have the Avengers. What happens next? And they went from one massive success in phase two to the next, starting with Iron Man 3, which I love. I know that movie has some detractors. I don't get it. I think that movie is so successful because it's about Tony. It's like, what happens if we take him out of the suits? Oh, awesome. He's still a great character. We go from that to Winter Soldier, which completely just a fucking slam dunk of a film that completely shook the universe. Thor Dark World, meh. Okay. There's some moments in that movie. Guardians of the Galaxy came along and was another complete game changer. So we're going to be wrapping up, as seems to be the, the case, at least for the first you know, three phases in the MCU. Who knows what's going to happen going forward, whether each phase will wrap up with an Avengers, even though we get little addendums like Ant-Man and Spider-Man and Captain Marvel and stuff. But that brought us to Age of Ultron. And I know, like, at least for me, I was kind of waiting for this movie like the coming of Christ. I was so excited because the, the Avengers movies have always been something kind of special in the MCU, just like in, in the comics. You know, I guess as a, as a complete, you know, just to be honest, I was never a big comic book kid. Actually, I wasn't a comic book kid at all. My association with comic book characters was either the animated series in the 90s, um, specifically Spider-Man. I love Spider-Man. I was a fan of the Iron Man show as a kid, but after watching it on Disney+, Plus, oh my god, it's fucking horrific. That show is... Oh. Anyway, uh, the X-Men cartoon, which is still awesome. So my enjoyment has always been the movies. So while loving the individual films, the Avengers movies were always very... It's always been very exciting for me because I get to see all my favorite characters in one place doing stuff. And... Age of Ultron, as I said, being kind of this black sheep, it's sitting in the middle of this Infinity Saga, as it's now called. It it occupies this weird kind of nebulous space in the four Avengers movies. Because it's not the first one, where we were all just so excited that they were all together and saw how awesome they worked together. And it's not Infinity War and Endgame where we're dealing with Thanos and this culmination it's this other little thing. Because even in the, the first Avengers movie, that drew heavily upon what had already been established. Namely, with Loki as our villain, we had met him in Thor, we loved him in Thor. And so all of the elements were familiar to us in, in varying ways. But with this, where do you go? You know, what do you do? Now, I, I know that... Joss Whedon was always big from moment one wanting to use Ultron in some kind of a capacity. But how do you tell kind of this middle story that is kind of nebulously setting stuff, some stuff up, but might not get paid off until later or, or at, at all? Because who knew at this point if Whedon was going to make another Avengers movie, if he was going to continue this along. Because at this point, it's like he's the one with the magic touch. He's the only the only one, we thought at this point, that could bring all these characters together and keep them functioning as a unit. Now, we would quickly learn in Phase 3 that uh, Marcus and McFeely, the writers of all three Captain Americas, Thor Dark World, 
and Infinity War and Endgame were more than up to the task of of doing that. So we're left with kind of this this odd film that I know kind of bugs some people because it in the scope of the saga it just kind of feels like well, what are we doing now? What's the next step? What's because we're no longer in this let's bring the team together mode because that's what the first Avengers movie really is all about is let's bring the team together. Let's show how different everybody is and how everybody kind of butts heads, but because they are earth mightiest heroes, when the, you know, when the call to action is sounded, they do come together. They do operate as a team and they completely save the day and everyone gets their nice little arcs and, you know, Cap becomes the leader of the team. You know, we get to see Iron Man start his road to selflessness that that he explores throughout the rest of his his time in the in the saga. But this time, I think, and it's one of the great things about the movie is Whedon's like, okay, now that we have them all together, we have this functioning team. Now we have to start ripping everybody apart. Now, whether he was told what was going to happen, whether he knew, whether now I'm, I have to assume that at this point they had phase three mapped out. So they knew that civil war was going to be happening. So that's where you start to see this groundwork being laid. And I think that's why something like Age of Ultron might have been contentious at the time because you're not sure what's happening because it is a, a bit of a grimmer take on their functioning together as a team. But when you get to look at it in the whole of this infinity saga of the, of all three of the initial, these initial phases of the MCU, I think there is when you see just how integral this film is to this overall tapestry that's been created. Because when you look at it as a whole, you see, all of these little details that, yes, it turned out they did get set up and all of these things that were going to change after this, you know, we get the first real other than, you know, the first Avengers movie, we saw Cap and Tony kind of butting heads, but now it really starts to come forward here. And their relationship is not as, you know, it would come to better fruition in let's say, obviously, Civil War and Endgame. But here you start to really see these different ideologies on the team. And I think that's what's so fun about this movie is you see these, not just the disparate personalities coming together, but what would happen if you took these personalities and kept them together? They would become almost toxic to each other. You would you would have just like, you know, I think it's, Bruce Banner says in the first Avengers movies, you know, we're a recipe that creates chaos and they would, you couldn't keep these characters in proximity to each other over long periods of time without massive problems erupting. And that's, what's fun here. And that's what Whedon does so well because it goes back to the characters and that's why the MCU works is the characters are interesting. We care about them beyond just their powers or what they can do. And that's what this movie does so well by focusing on them as individuals. We, or at least I believe that it's a motivated fracturing of this team. So before we go any further, let's, uh, let's see what IMDb has to say about 
what Age of Ultron is technically about because it's an incredibly busy film. So it would be a little easy to kind of get lost in the plot. And I will say that's a valid criticism of the movie because compared to the completely no fat streamline approach of the first one, and you could even say Infinity War and Endgame, this is a big movie. I I hate to use the term bloated, but there is a shitload of stuff going on. So according to IMDb. When Tony Stark and Bruce Banner try to jumpstart a dormant peacekeeping program called Ultron, things go horribly wrong, and it's up to Earth's mightiest heroes to stop the villainous Ultron from enacting his terrible plan. That's a that's a pretty solid breakdown of this movie. And I think that's that's the key there, is that's one of the major things that sets this film apart from not just the other Avengers movies, but just other films in the MCU, is if you could say there's ever been a cons- semi-consistent problem in the MCU or just comic book movies as a whole, it's the villains. I I think one of the, a constant criticism that I would say with the, with comic book films and with the MCU is they tend to rely a lot where villains are uh, sins of the father, you could say. You know, how many of these movies, the villains come about because a father figure or an authority figure has fucked up something in the past in terms of interpersonal relationships and put them in a position where somebody has come forward to to claim their revenge. Iron Man 1 and 2, uh, uh, Odin's duplicitousness with Loki in the first Thor. You have Ant-Man had that same problem. Thor Dark World. It's it's something, you know, uh, Black Panther did it. It's it's something that's it's an easy trope to to grab onto. Because then it's something, you know, the the hero has to rise up and deal with it. You know, I, I have to clean up these mistakes. It also allows the the hero to show that they're evolving, that they're learning from the mistakes of the past, et cetera, et cetera. But with this one, specifically with how they handle Ultron, it he is a villain that is specifically the sins of themselves. It is the hubris of the Avengers that creates this and not so much the hubris as a whole. You could say that it's just Tony that did this, but it's the environment that their, their success as a team has created for him that would allow him to think of something and do something so drastic that instead of, you know, he said, I I don't have time for the, you know, the town hall debate, but that's exactly what they fucking need to do is sit down and have a town hall debate it's so reckless and irresponsible for for Tony and Bruce to attempt something like this. And that's what's great is Ultron is the dark side of themselves. He's everything that they could be. Because with, with the power that these guys have, they could have easily, under different circumstances, gone, well, we know how everyone should be behaving. We have the moral high ground. And we have the power to enforce it. So Ultron is the worst parts of themselves. He takes this peacekeeping initiative, the idea of keeping everybody safe, that the only way to keep them all safe is to just destroy everybody. It's an, it's an unaccomplishable mission to try and save the world. You know, he even so perfectly encapsulated by saying, I think you're mistaking peace for quiet. So it's just another example of how these... This film specifically, 
focuses on the characters and draws the internal conflict and the external conflict specifically from the characters that we know and have been established. And so let's, I'm going to take some time and talk about the characters themselves because we, as as I said earlier, there's, you start to see some evolution in them, but it's how we choose to focus or how Joss Whedon chooses to focus on them this time that makes it interesting. If there's a, well, I guess the, one of the most common criticisms labeled again or leveled against the first Avengers movie is the fact that Hawkeye got the short end of the stick in that movie. It was obvious they didn't know what to do with him. Everyone else had been well established at this point. Now Hulk was getting a bit of a reinvention, but we still knew him. Black Widow had got her time in Iron Man 2. Iron Man had two sequels, Thor, Cap. So Hawkeye is just kind of this almost unfortunately leftover element in the first movie. So hearing that criticism and people saying, oh, he's kind of useless to the team. What the fuck do we need Hawkeye for? He's just got a bow and arrow. So Whedon in his, you know, in his confidence and kind of, you know, a bit of a fuck you approach just doubles down on the character. He's like, you know what? I'm going to make him the human heart and soul of this film. And that's, what's I think great about that character. And I hope it's something that's more utilized in his, in his Disney plus series is the fact that he is just a guy. He is someone that signed up for this, knowing the risks. You know, he even says, you know, nothing makes sense. There's the island is flying and I'm battling fighting robots with a bow and arrow, you know, but he's that's what makes that character so great. And I think that's what's fun about the heroes as a whole, especially the ones that aren't so overpowered. You know, it's one of the things that makes Cap so noble is that in the face of these overwhelming odds, you still go out there and you do your job. And seeing that he's, you know, he's a family man and there's the concern there about, you know, he has a wife and kids at home, but he still goes out there and does this job in, you know, being surrounded by all these insane characters, people that have their own motivations, their own agendas and powers that you, you, how do do you fathom that? You know, one day you're a soldier and you're out there doing your job and all of a sudden there's gods falling from the skies and there's, you know, supermen from world war two being thought out of the ice and a guy that can basically make anything pop out of his arm and can build the most incredible technology and, you know, the incredible fucking Hulk, and you have to go and fight robots with a bow and arrow. And it's it's borderline silly in a way that you couldn't get away with or other people couldn't get away with, but Weed manages to make it work in this strange amalgam of tones because the film does bounce between tones, but there's something specific about, especially Whedon's Avengers movies, where I don't want to say they're more comic booky than the other ones, but I do think there's there's a much lighter, quippier, fun tone to them. You know, there's you you could almost say there there does get to a point where it's like, were we being paid by the quip? You know, because you you don't go too long, other than you know the more serious scenes like when Scarlet Witch gets in everybody's head you you don't go too long without somebody making some kind of a joke, you know, until we get to some of the more, you know, 
remember people were so off put by the uh, by Captain America in Endgame when he's like, that is America's ass. It's like, ah, can Cap be that funny? It's like, guys, have you seen Age of Ultron? He's quipping almost nonstop through that film. And that works. The character can hold that up, even considering how serious a turn he had in Winter Soldier. The fact that when they're all together, you are they're almost given more of a license to to be funny and to almost in a you get this kind of perverse sense how much they're enjoying this work even though they're killing people you know let's everybody get so bent out of shape with the dc movies that you know oh batman and superman they're obviously killing people well when they raid that hydra base at the start those guys are dead like yes we see iron man shoot some people in the knee and stuff but Black Widow shooting people and, you know, Thor and Cap ripping, you know, if you hit a tank with a shockwave that can rip it in half, you know, their heads are gone, too. Like, let's let's not pretend that the Avengers don't have a colossal amount of blood on their hands, even when they're killing bad guys. So the the Hawkeye dynamic is is great in this. And it's it's a shame that it wasn't m- exploited more during the course of these three films or three series or phases, I guess. Bob, can you, do you even know? I've never seen an MCU movie before in my life. I have absolutely no idea what they call these. Are they innings, you know, or what do they call them in crickets? Is it is what's this wicket round or whatever the hell cricket is? But again, hopefully it's something that they will they'll exploit better in the in the Disney Plus series because they'll have more time, you know, however many, eight, ten episodes or whatever, you know. So we didn't get one standalone Hawkeye movie. We're going to get, you know, 10 plus hours of Hawkeye being Hawkeye. But I brought up the Hydra base, uh, the opening scene of the film. And it's something I want to address a little bit here because it's it's an odd sequence to think about in hindsight because obviously it's just a fun, bouncy way to start off the movie. You know, the Avengers are together now. So let's start it off with a completely dope action scene. And and it is. It It's just, it's moving from one scene to the next and every, you get to see everybody, you know, in full power, awesome mode doing exactly what they do. But if you think about it in context of the series, it's odd because it's the first time we see them all, the original six Avengers. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. You know, not the, the MCU, like, you know, the Avengers assemble, like, you know, in Endgame style where it's absolutely everybody comes together or civil war or whatever. This is the original six, you know, this is the, this is the crew of the enterprise. These are the, the prime six guys. This is the first time we see them fight in their absolute prime where every, you know, they're clicking as a unit, but it's also odd in the fact that it's also the last time we see it's the one and only time actually in the entire saga that we see them in their prime fighting as a team, because after this moment, we don't see this lineup fighting cohesively together again, ever. Even in Endgame, when they fight at the end, everyone else is there. You know, we have all these different characters. So it's it's almost a, a bit of a melancholy moment because you enjoy, like, I love that opening scene, but it's you never get that again. And it's it's an oddly ballsy move for them to have never done. Now, obviously, you expand the canon so much. You have so many other great characters you can draw upon. But you, I, I still at least kind of personally feel a bit of a loss that we didn't get even one more adventure, one more Avengers movie. Now, I know everything built up so perfectly to Infinity War and to, and to Endgame that I don't change anything. 
It's but a part of me's like ah, just one more Avengers movie with the original six kind of doing their thing together would have been nice because those are the scenes in this film that work so great, you know, cause in, in infinity war, we're split into kind of three stories, everybody kind of doing their own thing. And then we come together at the end to a point, but we're still broken up as a team. But here there's so many great scenes where everybody's together doing their thing, you know? And I think that's perfectly, perfectly encapsulated in the, in the hammer scene where, you know, they've had a party and you see them, you know, they're revels. They're enjoying how fucking awesome they are being the Avengers, you know, with all these odd people in the background, you know, where it's, you got a bunch of world war two vets and, and then a, a bunch of hipsters that look like they work for a tech startup. So that never made sense to me who these people were, you know, is it, are these all the people that work at Avengers tower? It's, they all happen to be, you know, stunning supermodels, you know, guys and girls or men and women. It was, that felt a little odd to me, but when they're all sitting around drinking and talking shit to each other, it's a small thing. And you, at least I can't recall a scene from the other films because things got so serious so quickly into phase three where they're all just kind of sitting around bullshitting and you see them out of their costumes you know, out of there, you know, they're not off fighting anybody. They're just a bunch of friends sitting around doing what any of us would do when we're at a party. You know, there's music playing, you're having drinks, and you start ribbing and razzing on each other, you know. But whereas we would do that about, you know, what someone's wearing or what they said or, you know, something about their job, you know, they're razzing about the hammer. And everybody taking the scene, the, you know, their turn to try and pick it up is is delightful. And we get the little nod of Cap just kind of nudging it enough. And then that amazing moment in, in Endgame where he finally picks it up and, you know, whomps the shit out of, out of Thanos. But it's those, it's those beats, these interpersonal connections, you know, even to something like the, like the Hulkbuster fight. And, you know, what do you do when Hulk is on a rampage? Well, obviously Iron Man would have to figure out a way to deal with it. And... That Hulkbuster fight is still one of the best fights because it it balances this tone of it's incredibly serious and dangerous what the Hulk is doing, but you still he still manages to slip in these humorous, funny lines, and it's motivated by the action of what they're doing. It never feels like they're fight, pause for a joke fight pause for a joke it's all very much moving and in the film as a, as a whole moves you know you even you know right down to the camera style even when we kind of stop to have some expositional scenes and stuff you always feel like it's it's a good moment let's take a breath let's take a breather because the next absolutely bonkers thing is going to start happening and in terms of the hulkbuster fight and its movement as a film it also opens up in terms of geography you know it's you know it always seems like supervillains or aliens come into town they always seem to land in new york or los angeles you know whereas this scene other than a couple of fights were around the world you know we're in south africa for the Hulkbuster fight, we're in South Korea for the well, where Duck Cho's lab is, and it's the the fight with the train crashing and everything. 
Then we go to Sokovia. We're back and forth there a couple times. So it's nice that this one kind of expands the world. You know, you see that these, you know, this really is a world that these characters populate. It's not just different cities in the United States, you know, i.e. New York or Los Angeles. So it was one of the fun things about Captain America First Avenger. You know, it was because we're in Europe for so much of the movie. It just it just gives it a different spice, a bit of a different flavor. So in terms of some of these characters I keep bringing up, I guess that's something we should address is I called the film bloated earlier. And I mean that in a, in a nice way. It's big because there's a lot going on and none of it's dull, but there's so much shit happening. You know, in the first Avengers movie, who's the one new character we really meet? Maria Hill? Like that's that's it. You know, all the other characters we know and are established. This time, obviously, we have to set up some kind of a new villain, so we have to spend time with Ultron, and James Spader, considering that he's a CG robot, is just so delightfully menacing and almost kind of an anti-approach to playing a robot like that, where he's, he's so devilishly human, you know, but on top of that, we keep packing, he keeps packing other characters in to varying degrees of effect. We have the, the South Korean scientist, Dr. Helen Cho, which, like, I get they have to, you know, it, it becomes, well, if I want this to happen in the movie, I need something to motivate it. So you unintentionally kind of start packing elements on to support the things you want to do later. You know, we're establishing this, you know, this flesh binding technology and what they use to create the vision. So, you know, we can't have Tony think of everything, even though I guess we kind of could. So we have these new characters. And I guess the two biggest new characters is the introduction of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver or the Maximoffs, which is, you know, dabbling their toes in X-Men because fans of comic books or I guess fans of the MCU, we all know at this point that... Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, those are X-Men characters. And I know there was some kind of, I'm assuming, corporate shenanigans behind the scenes where they managed to finagle away from Fox the rights to use these characters, provided that there was no mention of the X-Men. So we get the names, but at no point are they called Quicksilver or Scarlet Witch. You know, they're not mutants, they're miracles. They're created using the using Loki's staff. So cool, you know, I I guess, you know, that that creates the whole, you know, the tale of two Quicksilvers that was happening at the time. Because if I'm not mistaken, both this and X-Men Days of Future Past came out in the same year and they both featured Quicksilver. Now, it was to me and I think anyone else it's obvious that the X-Men's Quicksilver was a much more successful rendition of the character and it didn't have anything to do with the fact that he was an X-Men that that was beside the point. It was how they presented the character and how they used him in his power set. This time he's just kind of a grim European guy that that runs fast has a slight moral quandary and then dies. Like he's just, he's kind of there more so just to motivate Scarlet Witch. And her character is actually quite interesting. And like the, it's a completely different power set and it's 
I know that there's talk in, in her show, in the WandaVision show, and then into Phase 4 with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, that there'll be a further exploration of her powers. But this feels to me like the only time they really kind of exploit what she's capable of, and that's specifically with fucking with everybody's minds. You know, because for the rest of the movie, she's just kind of projecting energy. She's throwing stuff around. She's blocking stuff. Even in the later movies in Civil War and in the last two Avengers movies, she's just kind of throwing red balls of fire, picking stuff up, ripping armor off people. It's it's a different visually, and that's fun. But here you get the sense of she's really capable of something that's different from what the Avengers can handle. There's no one that's really capable, and I think that's of dealing with her, you know, other than, you know, Hawkeye just electrocuting her in the forehead, which is, you know, you have all these overpowered characters, and who's the one guy that can deal with her, you know, Buddy with his bow and arrow, again, coming back to keeping Hawkeye this kind of grounding force in the film. And I also mentioned earlier the stuff that would be kind of set up, her visions that she shows them, you know, that leads, we see deeper into Cap's relationship with Peggy Carter, this vision that Tony has is what leads us to Ultron. You also see that come back later in the uh, in the next two Avengers films, this fear that Tony's living with. So a hugely important character or an interesting character in this film that will become more important later, hopefully down the line. But again, it does feel at points too busy. Now, I've seen this movie so many times that it doesn't really even bother me anymore. Unintentionally, I think I've seen this movie the most of any film in the MCU. I I track everything I watch, and I've been doing that since 2015. And I've been in this like low-budget kind of greasy app on my phone where it just looks like an old text document from 1994. But I've been slowly putting it over into Letterboxd. And, you know, just adding it every time it comes up on my list. And as of like a year and a half ago, I'd watched it something like 14 or 15 times, just unintentionally. It'd be like, oh, I feel like watching an, an MCU movie. I'm going to watch Age of Ultron. It's got everybody in it. I'll just watch that. So I don't, I don't notice it so much anymore because I'm so familiar with all the elements. But I remember at the time feeling like, there's there's so much going on. And just like the first movie, something has to be sacrificed. And unfortunately, in this movie, it's Thor this time. You know, he had a very prominent role in the first Avengers movie. And this time, he's just kind of there. You know, he does stuff when it's necessary, you know, hitting things and smashing into things. But for the most part, he's he sits a lot of it out. He disappears for a good while. Now, we have that scene, you know, where he goes and gets his buddy Skarsgård and they so we can see him shirtless in the water. But really all that scene does is kind of serve to remind people that yes, the Infinity Stone thing is still happening. You know, remember Thanos in Guardians of the Galaxy? Like, look. So that feels a little tagged. I I remember at the time that this came out, leaving the theater and saying, or having a feeling that it feels like there's 20 minutes of this movie missing, 
where because there's so much going on and it just never stops moving, it it does feel to me like there's more. And I I can't remember if this is true or not, but I recall reading that there there was some pretty judicious cutting because the movie was running long. You know, you can get away with something like Endgame coming close to three hours. But, you know, the the regular Avengers movies, you know, this movie already pushes two and a half hours the credits. So I, I get why they did what they did, but it does feel like kind of a loss to see Thor kind of pushed to the side. Because just like this is the last time we're going to see the original six Avengers fight together, this is also the last time we're going to see this iteration of Thor. You know, there's a lot of things that come to a conclusion almost in this. It was a, this film is a very, you know, you could almost call it a solid conclusion to this, to phase two, to everything up to here, because everything's going to change going into phase three. We're ramping up to Thanos. So this movie is closing off a lot of stuff because going forward, Thor is going to be completely reinvented. Uh, starting with Thor Ragnarok, where the character, it's its awesome what they do with him. You know, now that we've done it three times, I'm kind of hoping in Thor Love and Thunder, we he's obviously going to start that way, but I hope we bring him back down to earth a little bit. You know, I, I like the stoic, I love the funny Thor, you know, in, in Ragnarok, he's hilarious. I love him in Infinity War. But I feel like in Infinity War, there's a bit more of a balance between the humor and the seriousness. And then obviously it's, you know, we, we get a great look at depression and everything in Endgame, but it's a lot of focus on the silly with Bro Thor. So this is the last time we get that kind of traditional one that we've seen in, you know, the first two Thor movies and then Avengers and this one. So we're we're closing off a lot of stuff. And this movie does have this kind of sense of a bit of a finality to it, you know, right up to the fact that we, we end the movie with a new lineup of the Avengers. Now I know at this point they didn't know if Robert Downey Jr. was going to be back as Tony Stark as his contract was technically done. So, you know, he kind of rides off into the sunset and we're left with this new team, you know, is now Falcon war machine, Scarlet Witch, Captain America, Black Widow, and The Vision, who I haven't talked about at all. And I want to address this because I've talked to some of my friends, uh, comic book loving friends, or comic book movie loving friends, and they don't really care for Vision, the way he's presented in the films. And I've liked him from day one because I've always been a big fan of Jarvis. I It's one of the things I kind of miss going forward is I miss that voice in, in Tony's helmet, that dry kind of sardonic British wit of his. And it's something that, that Vision keeps a little bit. He's played a little more serious going forward, especially in Civil War. But he's a refreshingly odd character in this one because he's the most philosophical of the characters because you, you have characters from other planets. You have all these characters, like I've said, from these insane, crazy backgrounds that are otherworldly in themselves. But vision is the one character who is completely unearthly. He is a, he's a, he's a robot. He is a manufactured thing. You know, that great line, you know, you're unbearably naive. Well, I was born yesterday. 
you know, and I love the design. I love that it's Paul Bettany playing him in the makeup, you know, well, obviously a lot of CG, but playing that character, his power set is neat and he provides a great parallel to Ultron. Because if you're looking at this, you know, these, these artificial creatures reflecting the, the good and bad sides of the Avengers, you know, what would artificial intelligence or artificial life think looking at humanity? You know, you, you hopefully, you know, we don't go straight Skynet, even though that's what Ultron is, you would have these, because we are such, you know, divided creatures in ourselves, you know, these, the dark and light sides of our personalities, you would have, you would need this balance, you know, you would have this, you know, the first one would look at the world and go, this is fucked, this, no, you're done, you've had your chance, you know, Ultron looking at all of human history in three seconds and, you know, drawing a pretty abrupt conclusion that we're a really shitty monkey and probably should have stayed in the trees. But when you start to layer more personality and humanity onto a character like Vision, he's able to look at it as, you know, a bit more of an optimistic sense, you know, knowing that we will probably doom ourselves, but there is there is still the nobility in trying. So, again, you we're representing these characters so great. Even the, you know, Cap and Tony, these different sides of this kind of same noble mission, you have vision and Ultron, these different sides of, you know, of this artificial intelligence. It's, it's looking at characters from every single side, getting to getting to see the internal struggles and dynamics of, you know, Hulk, after having this horrible shame of destroying the city in South Africa, Black Widow dealing with her past and how, you know, when confronted with that, it just completely shakes her to her core. It's, that's what's so great about this film is it's all about characters. Even though it is a nonstop action show, it's focusing primarily on the characters. And I think that's something that people need to remember if you're an MCU fan and you haven't spent some time with this movie in a while, it's, there is so much to love here. It's tough nowadays because infinity war and Endgame are so incredible. We have something like captain America, civil war, which, which has everyone in it except Thor and the Hulk and they'd get their time in Ragnarok, you know, civil war, you know, that's kind of Avengers 2.5. So, but it, it almost kind of harkens back to a little bit of a simpler time in the MCU before the worlds really started to come together on the road to, to Endgame, when it was just the original guys, couple of extra characters thrown in, and they just kind of have a romp, you know, and you get to see all of these seeds laid out, you know, knowing you know, having known what's going to happen now that we know where everything goes to kind of see just how much would be pulled from this movie and used in the later Avengers movie. So absolutely worth a watch. Please go back and check it out. So that concludes the uh, my, my, my rambly ambly about Age of Ultron. And that brings us to Star Trek. I know everyone's excited. So... For our second go-around of 
our Deep Space Nine rewatch. We're looking at the third episode produced for the show, but actually the second episode aired. So if you're looking on Netflix, if you're following me along on this, this will show as episode three on Netflix, even though it was actually chronologically aired as the second episode. Got it? Good. So this episode is called Past Prologue, and it aired on January 10th, 1993. The episode summary is as follows. Tana Los, a former Bajoran terrorist during the occupation, asked Cisco for asylum on DS9. Meanwhile, the station's last Cardassian inhabitant, Garrick, possibly a former spy for the Cardassian government, proves an interesting mystery to Dr. Bashir. So, this episode is, is great because... It is the introduction of Garrick to the show, played so wonderfully over the course of the series by Andrew Robinson. Um, some movie people will know, remember, might remember him from his performance in the first Dirty Harry as the villain. He was also uh, poor Frank in Hellraiser. Uh, he was the maniacal barber in Child's Play 3. Wonderful character actor, whatever he shows up in. And Garrick proves to be one of the best parts of the show. And he's a character that could only function on DS9 because he is so wonderfully duplicitous and right off the hop from moment one. As soon as he walks in that opening scene to meet Dr. Bashir, walks up to the table, he is so slimy and mysterious and mischievous but you can't help but love him and want to see more of him all the time. And he's definitely going to prove his the, the merit of a character like this, where you can have so many shades of gray, because that's really what Garrick is. He is just one giant sheet of gray. When, you know... Wherever, whoever he needs to be, whatever he needs to be, you know, he is the perfect Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy character, you know, like right down to the fact that he runs a tailor shop. So that that's the big one here. And it's the beginning of this relationship that Garrick is going to have with Dr. Bashir over the course of the series. Now, it gets way better because Bashir become is so infatuated with somebody who is so not himself, somebody that is so duplicitous and has such a, uh, a dark history of espionage and betrayal and murder that he's somebody that is an innocent character like Bashir because he's still being played very overeager and innocent and almost childlike at this point would easily become infatuated with. And they go on to share a, a great relationship. But he's Garrick is kind of using Bashir here and using that childlike excitement uh, to his own benefits in this episode, where he kind of, you know, used, sucks him into his to his subterfuge and uses him to get a message out to to the good guys. Because you know, on on TNG, if somebody wanted to, to tell another character something, they just would. But in the real world, in politics, you can't always, if you're kind of, you're playing that middle ground, you can't just call up the good guys and say, hey, they're going to be fucking with somebody because you'll be found out. So you have to take kind of these backdoor channels. And that's what Garrick perfectly fits into that world and manages to manipulate these other characters to get what he wants 
in the end. So the other big thing here is, as I said in the in the summary, this character of Tanalos. Now that the war is over, now that the occupation has ended on Bajor, we start to deal with this. This this show starts to deal with this aspect of now what. You know, what happens to these soldiers and these, you know, people that were three weeks ago were terrorists and and freedom fighters? What happens to them now that it's over? You know, and it's it's a great look at, I, I think, a, a continuing struggle that a lot of great movies and TV shows and books have dealt with, right down to the idea of something like First Blood deals with it so perfectly. What happens when the war is over to the soldier? And what happens when, for them, the war isn't over? How, how easy can you go home? Do you just stop when your entire life you were born into war, born into conflict, and all of a sudden it's over and other people are making decisions and you've gone from being able to follow this ideology that your entire life has been built around, but now all of a sudden it's done. And everyone's telling you to stop. No, you listen to us now, and this is how we're going to proceed. Obviously, it's not that simple. And that's what this episode does so great. Because we're dealing with, we're seeing this character of Tana, who his patriotism has now just become about revenge. And he's mirroring a great way someone like Major Kira, who knows him, knows what he's done. And she herself has done horrible things. Because in war, every side does terrible things to the other person or to your own people or in in the end, terrible things to yourself that you end up having to live with. So where his patriotism is just turned into revenge, she has to now draw this line in the sand for herself that no, the war is over. It, it has to stop some point. We have to go home eventually. And... This is the second episode out, and this is what we're dealing with already. It would have been so easy for them to, okay, we've had kind of our our grim first episode where we've established a lot of big, heady concepts. Now let's go and do kind of a an easy, mellow Star Trek episode with just a little one-off adventure that the first and second season, they do a lot of those. But no, they double down on the concept. So for anyone that thought that the first episode was a fluke, that it wasn't going to stay this dark and grim, no, we're actually going to go darker. We're going to deal with more heady concepts. We're going to force you to look at characters that are doing terrible things, but you can understand it. You're going to start to see... You know, a character that you had completely pegged one way in the first episode with Major Kira. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to see that she's it's not so simple. It's not as easy just to say that she's just one way and the character won't evolve right from minute one. Or I should say minute two. Technically, we're starting to shift these characters. Now, I know that this was the third episode produced, so it may be that that's the way they wanted to go, where they were going to do a little bit of a calmer, quieter episode first. But I love the fact that they had the they had the bravery, the lady balls to turn around and go, you know what? Nope, we're going right out of the gate with this so that no one is confused about what this show is. Now, I said that they go completely away from traditional Star Trek, but... 
at the same time, they do still throw the next generation fan base a little bit of a bone in the form of the Duras sisters. So anyone familiar with Star Trek The Next Generation is familiar with the uh, reoccurring characters of the Duras sisters, the female Klingons, uh, Lursa and Bator. And they they are just the the trashiest, most delightfully evil characters that just relish in being bad guys. So it's the only time they were going to appear on on Deep Space Nine because we we do get these you know other than when Worf joins the series later on, we get in the first couple of first two seasons we get this sprinkling of TNG characters and. I think it's it's their own way, kind of in the way the MCU would kind of sprinkle characters in as they went along to remind you that these worlds are connected. And that's what this kind of does. It's a nice little wave to the fans that go, we know this is really different, but don't worry. It's Star Trek. Look, it's the Trek you know. Look, there's the Duras sisters. You know them. They're, you're loyal. So that's that's a nice little touch. So... I think probably it's an easier episode to digest than the first one because they're not, they're doing, it's not as big in scale, you know, but it becomes much more intimate actually in tone and it's what the show would excel at. And as it go, as we move along in our, you'll come to learn in our, it'll rewatch here. You'll come to learn that they manage to balance the, the big scale stuff, but never losing sight of the human characters. And eventually all the large scale stuff becomes strictly motivated by the character's actions. So check it out. Again, it's on Netflix. Uh, It will be shown as the third episode, but watch that one as the second episode. Past prologue. Great episode. So that brings us to the end, which means it's time for a book review. Woot etc, etc. So this week I read an excellent book that was lent to me by my friend Tuesday, and it is called Best Movie Year Ever by Brian Raftery that my brother-in-law pointed out. I keep wanting to call him Rafferty. This book came out in 2019, and it's looking back on the year 1999 in cinema, which at the time, not a lot of people noticed, but it was a complete bonkers year for movies. You know, the world was about to change with Y2K, but looking back, I'm just going to give you an abbreviated list. These are some of the movies that came out in 1999. American Beauty, The Sixth Sense, Office Space, The Matrix, Fight Club, Being John Malkovich, Star Trek, the Star Wars, sorry, The Phantom Menace, American Pie, 10 Things I Hate About You, She's All That, Cruel Intentions, That's a short list. There's more films. But what this book does is it looks at how turbulent a year it was and why all of these movies manage or how all of these movies manage to come to fruition. And from a lot of young directors, a lot of young writers, if it wasn't their first movie, it was maybe their second, in some case, maybe their third. But for a lot of them, it was their first big films that were coming out. And reading the book, it's it's interesting how many of these films and the ones I just listed off look at a reality where something feels off, that we don't know what's broken 
but something is wrong. This idea that we're looking to escape this reality that we're in, whether it's the very in-your-face escape of the matrix, you know, the blue pill or the red pill, or the wanting to escape the confines of the, you know, the kind of nine to five world that had been created and, you know, something office space breaking out of that, the collapse of the decay of the nuclear family in the nineties, where we had almost this kind of return to, I don't want to say fifties values, but everything felt so calm and perfect in the nineties. You know, in the United States, the balance, you know, the budget was balanced. There weren't major wars going on, you know, Desert Storm right at the start of the of the decade. But, you know, in Canada, everything was OK. Those are the Gretchen years in the States. They were the Clinton years. But as we start to get towards the millennium, you have kind of this odd panic that starts to creep into the culture. You know, there's the whole Y2K thing. But. I can even, you know, looking back myself, everything was going so well in a weird way. Feel this sense of contentment that it almost felt like something had to break, you know, and obviously we know it did. You know, we this movie, you know, this movie year within, you know, just under two years we have 9-11 and the world as we know it would completely change. And we've moved into the last 18 years of almost nonstop war and recession and craziness, you know, explosion of social media and this strange degradation of culture and the rise of racism and hate crimes and just madness. And that's what these films are kind of almost this odd herald to that you can look back that it was this burst of a moment from all these filmmakers because it wouldn't happen again. You wouldn't have so many. And these are, for the most part, big studio films. These are films that got were either, you know, produced by the studios or bought by them and released wide. And they're exploring this idea that something's wrong. Something is happening underneath this beautiful veneer of the 90s that it's so easy to look back and say everything was so great. I know, especially my generation, you know, we look back at the at the 80s and 90s and like everything was so perfect and great and wonderful. But something was brewing. Every you you can't maintain that level of almost kind of a forced ignorance about the world and it came out in this burst of art right before the new millennium where you can see just how much things have gone wrong because you know something was wrong because of how strongly the public responded to films like these. If, you know, you would just had these kind of outsiders going, yeah, the family's fucked and eh, the world is strange, but everything was actually okay. Then there wouldn't have been this huge groundswell that made these movies so incredibly popular. And this burst of teen movies that hadn't really happened since the late 80s with the John Hughes movies. I remember at the time, you know, this pre-9-11 world, I was 14 or 15 at the time when these movies started coming out. You felt a little invincible. You know, the world was kind of ours, you know, at least in the, in the Western world, in this huge, complete bubble that we lived under. It, it felt like... We didn't know what was going to happen next, but it was going to be great and wonderful and it all belonged to us, but it didn't. And these films wonderfully encapsulate the fact that 
something was wrong and everything was about to change. So an excellent book. There are some moments of snark, uh, a little bit of a snarky tone in some scene or some sections of the book that pulled me out a little bit. You know, taking some a couple of pot shots at some people that I'm like, eh, dude, like let's let's rise above that. So th- there is a slight snark to some of it that is off-putting, and calling calling the Last Jedi uh, brilliant uh, really <laughs> pulled some cred for me. But the whole book is so wonderfully researched and and wonderfully put together. It's it's kind of a a microcosm book uh, similar along the lines of uh, Easy Rider Raging Bulls, which he references uh, a few points throughout the book. So definitely check it out called Best Movie Year Ever by Brian Raftery. So it just came out last year, and it, I think it might actually be one of the newest books that I read, uh, even though I just finally i am still a year late technically, but not by much. So yeah, that brings us to the end of episode two. And I want to thank you guys for, for joining me, for joining me, for this uh, trip down the MCU memory lane. So, because we're everything's about to kick off here this year with Phase 4. Uh, in May, we're getting Black Widow, her solo movie. Fingers crossed that that post credit scene has Cap bringing her back with the Soul Stone. In November, we get, sorry, we get the Eternals. My brain kind of blocked on there for a sec. And then we're also getting the two MCU series where uh, WandaVision they've bumped up and Falcon and Winter Soldier. God, my brain is just not functioning. I've been talking for too long at this point. So it's going to be a big year for it. So perfect time to go back, revisit some of your favorites. Pretty much everything is on Disney Plus now. So that's where I watch this. Uh, it's all Age of Ultron is also on Netflix as well, so you can check that out. Speaking of the internet, you can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name podcast. I'm still in the process of trying to get the Facebook name turned over from 14 months apart, but I am working on it. So hopefully by the time this episode airs, you can find me by searching Steal My Name on Facebook or keep searching 14 months apart. I'm working on that. So for episode episode three coming next week. Uh, another sequel, because that's just how I roll. One of these episodes, I'm going to do an original film. Next week, I'm going to be talking about another black sheep of a franchise, something that I think deserves a lot more love, and that is A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child. So join me next week to look at uh, Kruger's kind of last canical hurrah, as you might want to call it. So until then, thanks very much. And remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.